Hello, and welcome to the Needs Improvement Podcast, your regular deep dive into reimagining mental health and well-being in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicholas Whitaker, coach and co-founder of the Changing Work Collective. In every episode, we sit down with thought leaders in organizational health, as well as individuals who've navigated the complexities of mental health, well-being, and belonging in the workplace. Our goal? To dismantle the stigma surrounding mental health, ignite meaningful dialogue, and inspire both employees and leaders to revolutionize the way performance is gauged at work. So if you're eyeing a healthier, happier chapter in your professional life, you're in the right place. Together, let's transform the places we work into the places we would love to be. Let's dive into what needs improvement. Well, hey, folks, welcome to another episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. I am super excited to be talking with Jeff Jacobs. Jeff, welcome today. Hey, thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. Excited to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeff. So everything begins and ends with my family. I've been married for uh, 32 years. Uh, I don't know how that happened. It went by so fast. I've got two adult sons. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you know, congratulations to me for my wife putting up with me for that long. Um, but uh, I still have a year by year contract, but so far so good. Um, and then um, I am involved in nonprofit work, music, retreat in prison ministry. Uh, I've been more and more involved with mental health advocacy over the last few years and uh, my day job, which uh, which I love. I've been 30 plus years in human resources, and I'm currently the senior director of organizational effectiveness for Adobe. And um, then on the side, as I try to overcome my inner critic and imposter syndrome, I'm working on my first book in my in my spare time. Uh, So that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. I love that. So tell me a little bit, you know, we were talking before we jumped on the call. I know you're a big supporter of men's mental health. Uh, There's this term that you uh, Mm -hmm. floated across my desk at one point called a compassionate agitator. Tell me a little bit about that. What does that mean (laughs) to you? It's interesting. My, My story is kind of the the combination of a number of different things that have occurred in my, in my life. And a few years ago, I uh, stumbled upon the applied compassion training from Stanford medical school. And that had a very profound impact on me and my, well, I said that my role is organizational effectiveness effectively. What that means is that uh, I'm an executive coach and facilitator. I work with, with intact leadership teams And I liked the term compassionate agitator because when I think about either individuals or groups, the only way we're going to grow and develop is if we acknowledge that we have room to grow and develop, if we push ourselves out of our comfort zones. And it's kind of the reason why we need accountability buddies. And if we want to work out, it's sometimes helpful to have a coach. And if you are just pushing someone out of their comfort zone, if you're just that agitator, then you're at risk of just being a bully or a jerk or someone that's, you know, an individual doesn't want to have part of their life. But if you add the compassionate side of this and you're really helping them through obstacles and uh, adversity, then that's where that term comes from. So I like to push people. I like to agitate. I like to help people, you know, outside that comfort zone, which is so desirable for us to be in. But I try to do it in a compassionate way. So that, that's where that phrase came from. Now, I love that. And what brought you to this idea of compassion as, as a component of your work within the corporate space? 
you know, it's a funny story. It was uh, actually, it's, it's ironic because it was three years ago, right before New Year's. And my company, uh, Adobe has a, a learning fund so we can, we can get various leadership books and, and they'll, they'll pay for it, which is great. And I sent a note out to about 10 of my, you know, mentors, colleagues, people I respected. And I was in this mind frame of, you know, purpose of life and, you know, how do I make life more meaningful? And I asked them, what should I be reading? You know, what, what books are, you know, have, have impacted you. And I got a list of 30 books and one of the books kind of jumped off the page at me. And I started with that one and it's the, uh, the book of joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And I was really struck by their descriptions of joy versus happiness. And we can get into that, but uh, it was on page 262 that they, uh, the Dalai Lama referenced this compassion program that he was um, advocating for uh, out of Stanford Medical School. He had uh, donated some of the proceeds from one of his books to, uh, to that program. And I was laughing because I was enjoying this book and I felt I had learned so much from it, this conversation, these conversations that took place in Tibet. And then 20 minutes up the road, there's this program mm-hmm. that uh, is teaching what uh, uh, what I'm reading about. So I checked it out and that led me down this 11-month certification, which led to another program, a nine-month certification through Sounds True and LinkedIn Learning in New York University, which led to the Institute of Organizational Science and Mindfulness. And then three years later, I have just seen a, a phenomenal difference in terms of how this has shaped my outlook, how it has impacted my ability to be a better coach and facilitator. And probably most importantly, this huge unlock on the topic of self-compassion and acknowledging that that was really a foreign concept for me. And that Mm self-compassion allowed me to tap into some things. And that actually was was an unlock for, for mental health advocacy and kind of going public with uh, some of the challenges that I've been facing that I was, you know, frankly, too concerned to to share publicly prior to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for doing that work. I mean, I I think a lot of leaders could benefit from training and from exposure to compassionate uh, awareness and just other modalities around how to put that into practice in the actual workplace, you know, particularly when you talk about mental health, you know, and I think this is a, a big reason why I even started this podcast in the first place was really to try to destigmatize the experience of mental health struggles in the workplace, particularly for men. You know, yeah. I, fa- I found that that has been mm-hmm. a very interesting journey of my own. I'm kind of curious, you know, to whatever degree you're uh, willing and, and able to share, um, can you provide a little context for us about like, you know, what your experience was within the corporate space, mm-hmm. uh, navigating mental health awareness yeah. and navigating your own mental health struggles? Absolutely. So one of the most important messages or lessons that I learned, I use the phrase that I've only lived in my own body. So I don't know what typical is. Mm. And I thought, in dealing with the pain in my gut and the uh, circular thinking and uh, the constant rehashing the past and over planning for the future. I just thought that was typical. I thought Mm -hmm. that's what everybody did. And I was wondering why everybody wasn't talking about it Mm -hmm. because, 
<laughs> it was it was exhausting. And um, my part of my point in sharing this is that I think a there are individuals that suspect or know that they are struggling and they feel alone and they feel isolated, or B, there are individuals like myself who don't even know that they're struggling needlessly, that they're, that they may have something they're wrestling with and there's help available. Mm. Now I found out about this through pure happenstance. I mean, I believe in divine intervention for, for these reasons. Um, I, uh, the first time I, I managed a team, I was a disaster. You know, it was, it was 20 years ago and I was a horrible manager. Now we achieved our results. We got, we got accolades and awards from the executive staff and all that, but I was just miserable. Hmm. So years went by, uh, and I kind of abandoned management and I was an individual contributor and labeled high potential and all those things. And, and then I, uh, I got promoted to managing a, a team that was three times larger than the team I was, uh, you know, I crashed and burned with. And I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to go to our employee assistance program and I'm going to, I'm just going to get some uh, coping skills. You know, I'll have a couple conversations with a, with a counselor, get some coping skills to help me manage this. Uh, figured I'd have one or two sessions. Well, a year and a half later, I was still in therapy and, uh, it was a year and a half later where my, uh, my counselor said, um, have you ever considered medication? And I had this, oh my God moment, because on one hand, I felt like you are asking me to admit that I can't handle this on my own. Mm. And on the other hand, I was thinking, you mean there's a light switch that I can mm. just flick on and I'll be a different person? So she was a therapist, not a doctor. So I then um, spoke to two other doctors and had a formal diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder with obsessive compulsive tendencies. Mm -hmm. Now in my family, when there is an issue, you ask, what pill do I take? And that's what I did. I figured, you know, I worked through some different medications, found something that, that worked side effects I could, I could deal with. And, uh, and that was it for the next 16 years. I never even Googled anxiety disorder. I never looked into any of this. And then years later, <laughs> I, I describe it this way. My, my poor wife kept holding up bigger and bigger mirrors, trying to, to have me see my behaviors and how, you know, they were, they were challenging. They were causing problems in our, in our relationship. And, and, uh, I was just, I was defensive and I didn't want to accept that these things were true and I didn't have the self-compassion and I didn't have the vulnerability. And it was only then that conversation coincided more divine intervention because I was enrolled in the Stanford program a month before she finally got my attention. So that's a long-winded version of my, of my story. And then once I, I really did some research and started to understand years later, I started to say, oh, that's why that's the case. I don't have to be like that. I can choose not to be, and not that it's a black and white situation. Uh, it takes vulnerability and self-compassion for me to acknowledge that, oh, okay, 
um, now I get some of these behaviors mm-hmm. and can choose a different path. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I don't think it's a long-winded story at all. I think that's a really important story to tell. Um, and one thing in particular just stood out to me and what you shared is like this idea that you weren't able to handle this on your own. I, I literally just posted a, about this mm-hmm. on LinkedIn earlier today. And this, this, yeah. I don't know if it's specific to men, but at least I know the way I was raised. It was this kind of like suck it up and walk it off type of mentality. Uh, if you were struggling with something mm-hmm. um, and that, that moment that you mentioned where it's like, you have to admit to yourself that you're not able to manage or handle something on your own. There, there's a component of identity in there. And there's a component maybe of like shame or disappointment. And there's, there's a lot mm-hmm. that's involved around that. And I'm kind of curious of your experience of that. Um, you know, was that the thing mm-hmm. that was really maybe holding you back from getting the help that you needed and maybe having the awareness that you were struggling or was it more along the lines of like that sense of isolation and that lack of ability to have conversations around these things, or maybe it was something else altogether. You know, I think it, shame is a, is a huge aspect of it. And there's also the fear, mm-hmm. the, the fear of, the impact it might have on my professional brand and my ability to provide for my family. Mm-hmm. You know, 30 plus years in HR, I'm a big fan of Carol Dweck's work and this idea of the growth mindset and the mm-hmm. idea that, uh, you know, there's a fixed mindset that says I am who I am and I'm not going to get any better and I'm not doing justice to her, to her work. But then there's the growth mindset that essentially says that, I can perpetually grow and learn. And if I don't know something then I can learn it. And, and my approach was that if something didn't come naturally for me, then I should avoid it. I should, you know, push it aside. And the irony of this is I was teaching people about the growth mindset while I was getting incredibly defensive and I was not open to feedback because I thought if you verbalize a piece of feedback, then it may stick to my brand and it may cause problems for me. And I, you know, was not receptive. And it was a lot of that fear and a lot of that shame that came along with it. Now, I think part, I want to make an important point, important point to me here, Nick, here is that I think part of the reason that I have been able to embrace this journey is that, you know, I'm in the latter portions of my career. I don't have to worry as much about the financial side anymore. I'm working for a great company. I've got a great job. If anything happens, if my vulnerability, if my talking publicly about mental health, if that hurts my brand or causes me to even lose my job, which I don't anticipate being the case based on my experience, then I can find another way. I can I can manage. Earlier in my career, I didn't have that confidence or that, you know, that ability. And I also want to acknowledge that, you know, I am in a place of privilege. I'm I'm you know, a white middle-aged male who is, um, in, you know, having a successful career. And I think the kind of things we're talking around about around mental health and around vulnerability, if you are a person of color, if you are a woman, it it may be a different situation. And if you're earlier in your career and company Mm -hmm. culture plays into this a great deal, because a lot of companies, you know, they have their values on the wall, but, we know that that's not always what's practiced. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can get labeled and put in a box. So those were all the things that were coming in uh, into my mind. So you're right. Shame is a part of it, but fear was a big part of it as well. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to name that too. And you, you bring up a really interesting point. You know, I think we're slightly different parts of our careers. Like I was like maybe more mid uh, career, not towards the tail end of my career when I started being much more public about my own mental health struggles. And I think that was the number one thing I was most concerned about was like, what is the impact of this going to be on my personal brand, right. on my ability to get other roles of people to be able to trust me? Um, similarly, yeah. I, I was managing, you know, anxiety and, and overwhelm and burnout and all of these other things. Um and I think one of the things that I learned probably way late in life was actually this, uh, another gentleman named Dean Yates, who I interviewed on another episode uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, he wrote this really beautiful book called Lion in the Sand. He talks quite about a bit, a bit about his experience uh, as the head of a, a news bureau uh, during wartime where he lost some of his men. And the way that the news organization handled that was injurious. And there's a term that comes around called moral injury, where like there's this disconnect between your ability to align yourself with your values. And let's say, for example, an organization or a company, what they're espousing and what they're actually practicing might be somewhat different. And a lot of things I think where people mm -hmm. get uh, tripped up is they, they feel like there's a lot of discussion around bring your whole self to work, you know, take care of yourself, take mental health days, here's your EAP service and so on. But when it really comes down to it, if someone's struggling with mental health, the mechanisms really aren't in place to support them in the ways that they need to be supported. And that can create what's yeah. called a moral injury. Uh, and that becomes something that's very difficult to heal from uh, as well on top of the actual mental health mm -hmm. uh, struggle that you're already experiencing. And I'm kind of curious, like from your perspective, you know, it sounds like you've had a pretty, uh, as you mentioned, privileged and just a kind of really well, uh, you've had a very privileged and, and kind of co comfortable way of like moving into this as like you've been exploring in your later parts of your career. What would you recommend to somebody that's maybe at the earlier stages of their career, they're struggling with mental health, or maybe like they're not quite sure if it's a mental health issue that they're struggling with, or they know something is off and there's that fear or that shame that comes up. You know, what would you recommend to somebody along those lines? Mm -hmm. You know, I have two adult sons I, I mentioned, and um, there came a point where I sat them both down because, you know, we have, uh, you know, some mental health challenges in other parts of my family. And I sat down with them and I, I wanted to articulate for them, if there's ever a time where you feel that something is harder than you want it to be. Or, and I went through some of the symptoms that, that I had experienced, then I wanted to demystify the fact that this was something that we could talk about. Now that said, I do believe that we have to acknowledge that any organization, whether it's a corporation, a nonprofit, a church, a school, they are ripe for dysfunction because we are, in a sense, in competition with one another. We have limited resources. You know, it's not a malicious thing. Mm -hmm. It's a structural thing. And as such, I think, you know, one of the disservices that I did to myself is I had unrealistic expectations for that entity. So checking my expectations was a big help along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an illusion that we are 
you know, best friends with a lot of the people we work with because we spend eight, 10 hours, you know, a day together. And in some cases that's true. And in some cases it's, it's not. And when you leave a company, you realize which relationships you take with you and which, which you don't. So I think part of it is the, are the expectations that we bring in because you're absolutely right. That phrase, bring your whole self to work. Well, yes, but there is, we all know there's an awful lot of bias that exists. And I've been in a lot of talent review conversations where, you know, we, we assess somebody's ability. And I I wrote an article a while back uh, about um, the challenges associated with feedback. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges is, uh, you know, our uh, concern over damaging a relationship, but additional challenges are the time and investment it takes to provide the feedback in a meaningful way. And my actual faith in your ability to change. And there's a long list of those things that go along with it. So what would I recommend to an individual? The first is I would just kind of do some self-reflection about your own happiness and your own, what's getting in your way, what adversity exists. Then I would encourage people to, to seek out some safe risks to have these mm-hmm. conversations perhaps outside the work environment and then ease into the work environment to test that and to really assess the culture of the of the organization because it it can be a, a significant risk. And like I say, if somebody is really relying on that paycheck to support a family and they don't feel as though the culture of the company is supportive and they don't believe that they have the ability to find something else, that's a really tough position to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious too, from your perspective, like this idea of vulnerability, uh, I imagine it requires an mm-hmm. enormous amount of vulnerability to be at a position where you're at now and have, you know, frank and vulnerable conversations about your own journey and your own experience. Where, where have you seen vulnerability show up within your, your journey? And how has that impacted the way that maybe people engage with yeah. you or the way other people may have maybe been able to find help or support because of the stories you've told. You know, I have been more and more public and to give you a little more color on my role, um, I support about 200 executives in one of Adobe's businesses. So the 200 executives and their, their leadership teams, and I create tailored engagements for their teams and we do things around change management and communication and conflict resolution and productive conflict and, you know, leaning into some of the, the discomfort that, uh, that we're talking about. And I try to make the case with the people I work with to get comfortable with the discomfort, mm-hmm. because I think that's the biggest thing is can you lean into that discomfort? And I'll give you a a few examples here. So when uh, years ago, when I was identified as a high potential, I was given an executive coach and I worked with that coach for over a year. And at one point I told him that, you know what? I'm really intrigued about the prospect of being a coach and a facilitator. And after working with this gentleman for a year, he said, you know what, Jeff? I I don't think that's a good choice for you. And yet... I'm one of the more sought after coaches and facilitators at this $19 billion company. And as a public speaker and coach, one of the number one fears of anyone on any, on any survey, what's your greatest fear? Public speaking is usually higher than death 
-hmm. and I have anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So there's these, these built in conflicts. And I think, you know, it's, it's not any different than, uh, you know, my not doing well on that first math test and my folks telling me, well, you know what, you're not good in math. And then I ended up choosing my major in college based on what would, you know, what major could I have that would uh, keep me from taking calculus? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny, the stories we tell ourselves. So I think this idea of leaning into that discomfort and really testing yourself and testing some of those assumptions is is so, so critical. Uh, it's it's just it's absolute. And do you, do you sense that there's a, an ability for people that have gone through experiences like you have uh, to be more vocal in a way that is maybe helpful changing culture within organizations that help cultures within organizations to be more open around mental health awareness and to actually create those structural elements that are necessary to really support people more fully? You know, we had... Uh... A couple of years ago at Adobe, we invited Hubert Jolly to speak to uh, our, our VP population and above. Hubert was the former CEO of Best Buy. And he has this quote that I've used over and over and over again. And he said that vulnerability creates connection and followership. Mm. And that really strikes me. And then I contrast that with a research study that was done in the midst of COVID that found 68% of CEOs felt if they were more vulnerable, if they demonstrated more empathy, they would lose credibility with the employees in their organizations. That's what we're up against. That's the, the challenge that, uh, that we face. And yet, if I work with a team and I've spent a few hours with you know a group of people and we talk about some of these things, I find that when I disclose, when I am vulnerable first, mm -hmm. it gives them more right to do the same. So for instance, we had an initiative uh, last year where we were going to have um, all the executives in our business unit focus on uh, how do you build a culture of feedback within your organizations? And I led the workshops for all the executives. And my number one request of them in terms of building a culture of feedback was to ask them to ask for feedback first, mm -hmm. to really demystify this. It's, it wasn't about getting good at giving feedback. Yeah, that's a part of it. But the most important thing is you ask first. And I remember when I, when I first met with the op staff, I said, you know, you all like to say or think that you're approachable. And it, I'm not saying you're not nice people. But it's not the case. Mm -hmm. And it starts with your title. You know, um, we've got vice presidents and senior vice presidents and and your meetings are back to back to back. And you you want to think that you're open to feedback and that's in your heart. But there's so much of a mountain to climb for someone to actually take you up on that offer that if you actually ask and really push and, and then we have the challenge that we want to be nice. So when we do mm -hmm. offer feedback, we may give a feedback sandwich or we may give something that's, yeah, Oh, you're wonderful. We really have to pull to get that sincere feedback. No, no question about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, those are a couple stories that come to mind for me on, on the power of vulnerability and modeling that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine too, like that probably allows people to feel a lot less isolated and alone in their own experience. Like I know from my own experience, Mm -hmm. I had one manager in particular, and it was the first manager I had had in maybe 20 years who openly Mm -hmm. spoke about his own anxiety and his own panic disorder. And just having that conversation, and it was like a hallway conversation, like on the way to like a meeting uh, where we were sharing this uh, conversation. And it suddenly gave me permission to have the feelings that I was having and to be experiencing the struggles that I was having. And then suddenly I had now a confidant and a mentor that I could talk with that was in a position of leadership, but a mentor that I could share with, like, here are the things that I'm struggling with. What have you done that's been useful for you? And that's actually what led me to get therapy you know, and more in-depth mm-hmm. therapy to really address some of the issues that I was having. I'm kind of mm-hmm. curious about your, your perspective. Like, you know, is that something that you've also seen, you know, in, in your world where, you know, when you're talking more about your own experience, it, it's helping other people feel less alone? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I There was a wonderful CEO I worked with at, there were several wonderful CEOs at Intuit, which I think is just a phenomenal company. Uh, Intuit and Adobe are the two best places I've worked. And this particular CEO, when he got his performance review from the board of directors, he posted it on his office door and sent copies out to all of the 10,000 employees in the company. Now, that's a pretty bold, vulnerable statement to to do something like that. I also was a business partner for our chief financial officer at uh, at, uh, Intuit. And we had what we called a leadership success profile. It was, uh, you know, five leadership characteristics. And we were chatting about how do we get people to embrace and use this this profile. And he decided that he wanted to stand up in front of all 500 employees and share with the group what he thought he was good at and what he thought he was bad at. You know, here are the two things, the two items that I think I'm my strengths and here are the areas where, you know what, I'm, I'm not so good at these at these things. And I think when you have leaders that are willing to be that bold and that vulnerable it it sends positive shockwaves through the organization that others can do the same thing. I do think it is important. We, I think what I shared earlier about the defensive posture and the desire to protect our brand is, is such a natural place for us to go. And Nick, I know you've been very public in talking about you know, your, your, uh, layoff situation. And in my 30 years, I've been laid off from three companies. Uh, one was because of an acquisition. One was because of, um, uh, financial reasons. I was one of a group and one was all about me. Mm. And I could definitely make the case as to, I didn't see it coming. They didn't provide me the feedback and, and this wasn't in line with, you know, the bring your whole self to work. And I, and I did that for years. And what I found I was doing was I was disempowering myself. Mm. And that if I really looked at myself and said, you know what, were you asking for the feedback? And did you uh, see the signs? And maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't. Did you have an unrealistic expectation for the corporation? Uh, Because this happens all the time. Why should you be any different? Mm. You know, and that was actually more empowering when I could do that and look at myself with self-compassion as opposed to constantly replaying, I was wronged, I was wronged, I was wronged. Mm -hmm. um, That was very empowering for me. 
Yeah. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about the expectations of a corporation, an organization, because I think that, you know, part of what some mm -hmm. people struggle with, I know this is something I struggled quite a bit with, where there's this difference between what's being spoken and kind of championed within organizations and like what the actual culture and the ability of an organization actually is, particularly when you talk about sure. mental health and mental health awareness. Um I think a lot of organizations, I think you mentioned that they'll put their values up on a, a poster someplace and <clears throat> they'll speak a lot about like, you know, what the things are that they want the culture to be like. But when it really comes down to it, do we should we expect that much of an organization? Should we expect that much of corporations where they're able to hold the needs of everybody and, you know, create environments that are healthy and uh, foster well-being? Or is that is that asking too much? You know. I think that we can throw rocks at the companies that aren't doing it well. And there's a case to be made for that. But I am also blessed in that of my 30 plus years, I've spent 19 of them at two phenomenal companies. And while I do believe to my, to my core that yes, even the best of companies, you know, there's dysfunction that, it, that exists. I also want to proclaim the glories of companies that are doing it right. I quote unquote came out publicly with a mental health diagnosis at Adobe. I was invited in the middle of COVID there. I became friends with our head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And because of burnout and, and uh, you know, trying to help folks through the pandemic she had a variety of coffee chats and one of the coffee chats she had was on managing anxiety. And I confided to her, you know, confidentially my situation. She invited me to be, to be part on this panel uh, at work and 800 people tuned in. And mm -hmm. that was the first time I said, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing now that that's who I am. That's, that's part of, uh, you know, my, uh, my struggle. And what's interesting is that, you know, my brand is of this sought after coach and facilitator and, you know, one to many training and hundreds of people and all that. So, you know, to come out in that in that way, in that arena, I think does empower a lot of people. I give a lot of the praise to Adobe for having the kind of culture that enabled me to do that. And then further the first time I was interviewed on this topic, there was an article that was posted and I got a, a note from our chief people officer apologizing to me because she was somehow taking responsibility for my anxiety and feeling mm -hmm. bad that, that I'd never shared it with her. Our chief people officer, she's, you know, two or three removed from me. Um, but it was a wonderful, you know, gesture that she came forward with and shared. And I have been encouraged to do things like this and, and to have these conversations and Adobe is supportive of that. So I do proclaim the glories of a company like this. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. And at the same time, there are other companies that are just not going to be that enlightened. And we have to decide, do we have the options to continue to seek out those companies that are a better fit mm -hmm. with our values or do we not have that privilege and that, that ability? And I've worked for, yes, a couple of great companies. And I've worked for some terrible companies where I couldn't do that, where that mm -hmm. wasn't an option. Um, and, 
that's an assessment we have to make and, and a determination as to whether we have options. Yeah. You know, I think the, the question that comes up for me too, is like, assume someone is in an environment where that's not possible uh, and perhaps they're struggling and they've identified that they're struggling in some capacity or another. Um, but maybe the, the help isn't as obvious as to where to actually get support. You know, I, we have often mm-hmm. EAP services. In some cases, we'll have mental health discussion groups yes. and other types of organizations like that. What would you recommend to somebody that, you know, maybe has this question in their mind of, am I struggling with something? Should I be getting help? You know, where, where do I actually get that help? I think when in doubt, you should always have a conversation with someone. You don't have to admit that you have a diagnosable situation in order to talk to a counselor. I, I recommend talking to a counselor for anyone because you, you don't know. It's, a, it's all about illuminating blind spots as far as I'm concerned. So if you know the reason you're going, then maybe, maybe uh, you, uh, you don't need to go as much as if you don't. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is how do we illuminate those blind spots for us that are, that are so critical uh, along the way? And that said, we also don't want to put counselors on a pedestal. So I've spoken to a number of different counselors. I've spoken to a number within the last two years. And I work with someone for as long as I feel like it's productive. And then we may plateau in our relationship. Or I may find, you know what, you're not the right match for me. Or they may tell me something that I disagree with. And you know what? They can be wrong. So just because mm-hmm. they're the ones on the receiving end who have the, you know, have have hung out the sign that says, I'm going to help you. We want to be cautious about elevating them too high in our own minds. So I encourage people to get help, but I encourage people to also trust their gut. And mm-hmm. back to your comment about the compassionate agitator, are we finding counselors who are compassionate agitators or are they just agitators or are they just wrong mm-hmm. or are they just not mm-hmm. aligned for our needs? And we can shop around for that as well. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make. You know, a lot of clients that I talk to, like they've had a series of bad experiences with coaches or with therapists by the time they actually get to me. And a lot of the work that we actually do is kind of unwinding and, and undoing some of the harm and some of the damage that came from those experiences and really trying to help people understand that like not all coaches, not all therapists are the same. It's a lot like dating. You know, mm-hmm. that's actually a, an analogy I use quite a bit. It's like, you're going to have to go on like a couple dozen dates until you find the love of your life. I mean, it's just, that's just how it is. Why would you feel like that? That might be different with therapy. I think that's also difficult for people that are in a period of crisis, you know, where, you know, they, they're, they're trying to find sure. resources. It's urgent, you know, the, the, the hurdle of meeting multiple different therapists or multiple different counselors can be quite a tall one to get over. You know, are there other mm-hmm. types of support beyond therapists, beyond, beyond counselors that you would recommend? I, I think you mentioned, you know, it, you don't have to necessarily have a diagnosis to have a frank conversation with somebody. And, and I wonder if like, that's maybe where like compassionate leaders come into play. I think that's where compassionate leaders come into play. That's where compassionate friends come into play. That's where there's a lot of wonderful books. I mean, just the word compassion itself is an overused word. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of corporations have compassion somewhere in their values or in their mission statement or whatnot, but operationalizing compassion is, is very different. And there, you know, there's some wonderful resources uh, on the topic of, of compassion and leadership. And, you know, I'm a fan of Rick Hansen and Marshall Goldsmith and Pema Chodron and, you know, uh, people from all different backgrounds. And some of those books have a spiritual 
tint to them. Um, some of them uh, are more from a leadership standpoint, but um, I have found learning about self-compassion to be just so huge because I think I, in my case, I was my biggest enemy. I was my biggest mm -hmm. obstacle. And I think that's typical for a lot of people. I think getting over those mindsets. And as soon as I realized that I was being too hard on myself and, and sought uh, the skills to be able to manage through that, that's what came through the compassion education. And mm -hmm. that could be a full blown, you know, three certifications over three years, like was my experience. And I'm still hungry for more. Uh, or it could just be reading a good book on the on the topic. Um, I loved the Book of Joy. I think that's a that's a fantastic book. You and I both know um, uh, Scott Shute has a wonderful book on this topic, um, and uh, you know there's there's a number of great resources out there. Yeah, that book, Full Body Yes, if you haven't already read it, it's a fantastic book. Um, you know, and I'm kind of curious too, Jeff. You know, in terms of the way you see things evolving in the corporate space over the next say a few years just after our collective experience during the pandemic, it seems like there's a little bit more mm -hmm. of, uh, awareness around mental health. There's a little bit more discussion going on around topics around things like compassion or empathy within the workplace. What, what would you say sure. your forecast for the next like five to 10 years in terms of the overall corporate space might be, or, you know, what are some things you're optimistic about? You know, there's a, there's a few reactions to that. My, uh, the analogy I would offer is is kind of <laughs> if we look at politics what what happens in the in the US you know we we went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump we had a we had a rubber band uh, effect mm -hmm. and regardless of you know what side of the spectrum you're on my concern was in the midst of a global pandemic in a in a global emergency we talked about things like burnout and compassion and self-care and wellness and all those types of things and my hope among hopes is that that has opened a window that will not close. And that once we get a handle on the pandemic, then we will continue to acknowledge those things because I hate to say it this way from a corporate corporate standpoint, it's good for business. Mm -hmm. So my concern is that there may be that rubber band effect and we go back to the way it was. Now, I don't think that's the case. So, you know, for instance, in a, in Adobe situation, we were very much a FaceTime culture. We have these big, beautiful offices, come to work, collaborate, be together. And then, of course, as with every other company, you know, boom, we're home and, you know, overnight. And now we're trying to balance it out 50% of the time in the office and self-care and it continues. So I, my forecast is that the enlightened companies will still lead the way. The companies in the middle will hopefully learn some of those lessons and gravitate and we'll see more positivity. And those on the lower spectrum aren't going to change. You know, we we have some live all types of situations there. The other thing that comes to mind for me is um, you'll notice that um, I intentionally with my introduction to our conversation started with all the aspects of myself outside of who I am at work. And I mm -hmm. found that my identity, my work was becoming too much of my identity. And then as I mm -hmm. built out other aspects of my life, then the intensity of my work situation diminished. But again, I say that from a place of privilege because not everybody has mm -hmm. that, that option. So my forecast is that um, 
I think the U.S. in particular, we uh, we still face a lot of uh, uh, challenge. Uh, we are getting along less and less. So on one hand, we have the benefits, the silver linings of COVID. COVID. On the other side, we have more divisiveness than I've experienced in my lifetime. And I don't know how those things are going to play out over mm-hmm. over time. We'll you know, we'll, we'll see what, what transpires, but those are my hopes and my concerns. Yeah. Well, I share those with you as well. You know, and I wonder too, you know, if if there's in your experience, some 30 some years across the corporate space, you know, if you were to look back and, and say like, okay, if this organization could have done this one thing or these handful of things to really change culture, to be more compassionate and to be more aware of mental health struggles and more adaptive to that. Is there anything that comes to mind to you that you would, you would be hoping for? Well, I think, I think leadership modeling and vulnerability are really the key. I -hmm. think if I go back to that study from just a couple of years ago, that said 68% of CEOs are hesitant to be more vulnerable. If we could dial that number back to even 50% or, you know, 30 or 40%, I think modeling vulnerability and acknowledging that I'm not succeeding because I'm perfect or because I, I have no deficiencies, I'm succeeding and working around those. And there's multiple ways of succeeding. The Gallup organization is big on that. The Strengths Finder uh, exercises and now discover your strengths and, and such they are very clear about the fact that there is no ideal collection of strengths that are associated with success. People can be successful with a myriad of different strengths. And I think the more that leaders acknowledge that and talk openly, if we had done this even even earlier, that's the look back that I would see that we would embrace and create an environment of development as opposed mm-hmm. to evaluation and grading. Um, it's kind of like, you know, um, many corporations face the challenge that it is it is easier to hire someone from the outside than take a risk on someone internally. And it's not mm-hmm. that this person outside is better. It's just that we don't know what their deficiencies are. And I know, Nick, I know what you're good at and I know what your challenges are. And let's see if we can get someone who's perfect, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're only perfect mm-hmm. because we don't know, <laughs> know everything about them. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, first of all, I just really appreciate your perspective on all of this. And I I sense this like tone of optimism and generosity with so much of what you share, uh, both with the current organization you work at, but just generally speaking. And I think having that perspective of growth, having that perspective of vulnerability and development. I think that's the word that really kind of stood out for me. And that's kind of the whole name of this podcast around needs improvement. It's kind of pointing a finger at the current structure of how performance reviews uh, and performance management is is conducted in organizations. Um, and I think it's a really important note to, to end on is that you know, there's a lot that can be done to shift cultures within organizations to be more compassionate. There is research that points to the fact that those types of organizations are more successful, are more profitable. But more importantly, you know, re- reconceptualizing what our relationship is to work. I love that you started with your introduction and talk about all these other things that help define who you are as an individual outside of your title. 
and outside of the actual like work that you do. And, and I encourage folks quite a bit to think a little bit about that in terms of how they define themselves. Where does work fit into all of this? And is there more to this definition of who you are than your name badge and you know your paycheck that you get on a semi-regular basis? So I really appreciate you naming all of those things. Um, before we go, uh, is there anything that you'd like, any parting words that you'd like to offer to folks uh, or anything that you'd like to, to point people's attention towards in terms of like how to reach you, how to get uh, more involved in some of the things that you're doing or anything else that you might like to share? Yeah. So a couple of concluding thoughts. The one thing we didn't touch on, which could be a whole nother podcast, is the, the uh, topic of service. Mm. And one of the, the big, one of the powerful uh, discoveries for me was when I am being of service to someone else, it's very hard for me to worry about myself. And yes, that's, that's part of my motivation in some of the ministries that I'm involved with, but it's also a mindset I have at work is how can I be of service to the people around me? And that has been, been very helpful. I have uh, been an aspiring writer for a long time. And I deal with massive imposter syndrome. And I thought, well, if anybody doesn't like what I write, then it's not worth writing at all. Well, that mindset has changed. And I do believe the confluence of my mental health challenge or, or discoveries and journey, my uh, experience in coaching and facilitation, my life lessons through the nonprofit work and volunteer work, those have all led me to the writing of, of my first book, which is called Still Coming of Age. And the concept there is that this idea of the more we are able to identify and embrace growth and development opportunities, the more authenticity we're going to experience, the more success and happiness we're going to experience. So this book is, uh, is not uh, research heavy. It's not a lot of studies. It's a lot of stories through my life. And it's not to say that I have, uh, I'm not highlighting my successes. I'm actually highlighting my failures because I think there's a lot more to learn from that. So if anyone's interested in learning more about that or getting on an inobtrusive mailing list, you can check that out at stillcomingofage.com. And then you can also catch me on LinkedIn. That's beautiful. And we'll definitely be checking that out, Jeff. And hopefully we do get you uh, back on the podcast at some point. I'd love to dive in and talk a little bit more about service in general. Uh, it's a, a great part, uh, topic of conversation. But first of all, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your own vulnerability. Thank you for being uh, an example of what you know compassionate leadership can be. And thanks for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. All right, Jeff. Well, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about Jeff, you uh, can obviously check out his website, stillcomingofage.com. You can check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, and obviously, we'll have links to all the uh, URLs in the show notes uh, at the end of this episode. Thanks so much. And we'll catch you at the next one. Take care. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. If our conversation resonated with you, do us a favor. Share this episode with your network. We'll be back next month diving even deeper into what needs improvement in the modern workplace. Until then, take what you've learned and make your workplace a better place to be. See you soon.